When the scripture tells us that if we seek God, we'll find him, we'll also find the Son of God. In our search for God, we realize that it's not just in a single entity, uh, it's a triune entity. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and when we come to that realization, we have to ask the question, who then is this Jesus? Who is Jesus? <clears throat> in his trial, the high priest at that time came right out and asked Jesus. And I want to just read it and, and just try to imagine a tone of voice from the high priest who was doing his level best to remove Jesus uh, from his position, from, from power, uh, and actually kill him. But listen to what he says. Jesus <clears throat> kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you've said it yourself. And at that, the, the high priest was so angry, he tore his robes. And if we know our history, if we know the Israelite history, he immediately disqualified himself as high priest. It was against the law to tear your robe if you were a high priest. And there the, the final high priest of failure was looking into the, the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. And he asked the question, are you the son of God? Tell us plainly. And Jesus said, you've said it yourself. So we have to go back in our search and we have to say, who then is this Jesus? Who is he really? And of course, one of the most favorite verses in scripture, uh, if you grew up in a religious home at all, you would probably have heard this verse time and again, quite possibly even have memorized it as a youth. And you think about John 3.16. If you watch football, you'll see that just the reference held up in the end zone. John 3.16. Yep. <clears throat> For God so loved the world. How do we know God loved the world? Well, the verse goes on to say that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the, the context of this particular chapter is Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, asking the question, uh, you know, must I be born again? How do I do that? And Jesus said, by water and by spirit. And in all of this conversation with this man, this religious man, this religious leader, Jesus comes to this point and he says, you, you have to believe in me. You have to believe that I am who I claim to be. I claim to be the son of God. And our response to that is going to determine our destiny. Either we believe him and in believing we obey him or we reject him. And in rejecting him, we disobey him and our fate is sealed. It's out of our hands. We make a choice and then we must live with either the blessing or the consequence of that choice. Who then is this Jesus? Well, John would begin his writing in the Gospel of John. He would say, in the beginning, obviously referring way back to the very first verse of the Bible, the very first three words of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, John, as an old man, he looks back over 
his personal relationship with Jesus and his memories as an old man, he looks back and he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's quite a statement. And John is going to go through the rest of these 21 chapters of, of his gospel. And he's going to say, here's proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be equal with God. John chapter 10, verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, before Abraham was born, I am claiming to be God. And there are individuals in this, in this world today that make this claim. They'll say something like this. They'll say, well, Jesus was a historical figure and he was a very good man. And they'll make that statement. They'll say he was, he was a good man. He wasn't God. And we say, wait a second. He claimed to be God. If you claim to be something you're not, what is that? Well, that's a lie. So if Jesus claimed to be something that he wasn't, automatically that disqualifies him as a good man. He can't be a good man and make a claim that's false when he knows it's false. Possibly he didn't know it was false. Maybe he was just insane. Maybe he was thinking more highly of himself than he ought. Well, if that's the case, he was a lunatic. But he makes the claim. Throughout Scripture, he says, I am God. I'm God in the flesh. John, in chapter uh, 1 of his gospel, would say, he, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. The Word became flesh. Jesus, one of his names that's a prophetical name is Emmanuel, God with us. And so when we come to the scripture and we start looking, we find that there's something very fascinating about this individual, Jesus, the Son of God. What do I, what do I make of it? What do, I, what do I do with this man? What, how do I respond to him? Maybe like Nicodemus, we seek him out in the quiet of the night. Possibly we just go one-on-one -on -one with Jesus and we begin looking for answers and we begin searching. Remember, God has promised us if we seek for him wholeheartedly, we will find him. And so maybe like Nicodemus, we come to him at night and we say, who are you really? Well, let's go back. Let's go back in our history and let's see if we can determine an answer. Based on what the scripture says, based on what is given us, the evidence that's before us, Let's determine who this individual is. And in determining that, then we determine whether or not he's worthy of our uh, worship, of us following him, of making that decision, calling ourselves by his name. There are many of us that say we're Christians. Yep, we're calling ourselves by his name based on what we've read, what we've studied, and what we believe. And our belief leads us to obedience. Now, let's think about Jesus. The prophet Isaiah would make the statement, he will be born of a virgin. 
this is going to be a supernatural act. This is going to be uh, God coming to Mary, who has uh, never known man. He's, she's never been with a man sexually. And here Jesus is placed in this, in this womb, and, and he becomes flesh. Now, the Hebrew writer would tell us later in Hebrews 1, he had to have a body. Why did he have to have a body? Well, he had to have a body so he could die, so he could bleed, so he could be put on the cross and, and die for us. And this was all part of the plan of God. But at the very beginning, he's, he's brought into the world through a vessel, through this woman, Mary. She's not married. She's engaged. And when Joseph, her engaged uh, spouse, their fiancé, uh, finds out he's going to put her away secretly, but the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 this is of God. This is a special thing. This is a supernatural act. And so this person is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This person is God, and you're going to name him Jesus. Why? Why would you use that phrase for a name? Well, names in the scripture are very important very important. Abraham, the father of nations, Sarah, the uh, the mother of, of nations, uh, Eve, the mother of all living. You, you go through the scripture, we find all kinds of names that mean something. Well, Jesus' name meant something. It meant he'll save everyone from their sin. There's an opportunity for all to be saved based on who he is and what he's capable of. Now, when we understand this, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, you're going to be impregnated. You're going to bring this child into the world. You're going to care for this infant who is God in flesh. Imagine when you see an infant today, when you see an infant in a stroller in, uh, in a woman's arms. Think about Jesus, helpless babe, being cared for by a loving mother, being brought up in the, in the truth of the Jewish system, the Old Testament. Think about all that. This birth was not only, uh, in a, not only began in a, in a supernatural way, but it continues. They're called to a census by the government of that era, and they say, return to your homeland, and, and we'll make account of all the people in the land. And so, uh, Joseph and Mary take off on a journey while Mary's uh, nearly going to give birth. And they arrive and there's no room at the inn. She has to give birth in a barn, in a, in a manger where animals are kept. Shepherds are told. They rejoice in the field. They come and they realize it's true. And all of this, we, we celebrate this uh the end of every year, we celebrate his birth, and we remember that this was a supernatural event. And not only that, it, it changed history. It changed everything. It changed our calendar. We're in the year 2020. 2020 from what? From this supernatural event. The advent. Christ. God in flesh. He chooses of all people to be born in what we would call abject poverty. We know that 
both Mary and Joseph were poor. Based on our understanding of the scripture, uh, the firstborn in the Jewish family, uh, the parents were required to bring an offering, bring a, a sacrifice to God. And if they're able, if they're financially able, they were to bring a, a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, and present that to the priests uh, with their new child. And so every person that was born uh, to a Jewish family was required by law to bring a sacrifice uh, to God. Well, God understood that there were individuals who, who would be poor. Now, Jesus is going to say later in his ministry, you'll always have the poor with us in, in spite of uh, LBJ in 1964. <laughs> you know, that, that failed attempt. It's like, well, you're always going to have the poor with us. And God understood that. And he said, now, if you're unable to bring a, a lamb, then you can bring two doves. And if you're even poorer than that, just bring a grain offering, bring some cereal. <laughs> but everyone was required. And what do we see in the scripture? Well, Mary and Joseph arrive in the temple and they bring two doves because of their firstborn son, Jesus. Jesus chose to be born into poverty. He could have been born into the palace of, of some wealthy individual of the time. But he chose a poor family, a working family. Joseph, the carpenter, Mary, the mother, the, the working mother. And you, you think about Jesus and his leaving heaven. You want to you know what love is? There's a song with that title. You want to know what love is? Yeah, this is love. He wanted to show the immensity of his love. Oh, this is the beginning, his birth. And we continue in our study, we continue in our search, and we say, what else can we know about this, this individual? Well, the shepherds were giving glory to God when, when Jesus' birth occurs. And then the Magi from the east, from ancient times, from Daniel, from the prophet Daniel, I believe he was the chief of the Magi, and he must have taught an immense lesson that lasted for centuries in the mind of these individuals. And they're looking for a particular sign in the heavens and a star appears and off they go on some 600 mile journey. They're walking possibly with, even with camels, probably worse than walking, but they're, they're, they're traveling the 600 miles to see this infant and they arrive and they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh and they bring gifts and they, they come looking for the King of Israel. This is amazing. This is fascinating. And what does Jesus want? The same thing from us today. He wants us to, to make every effort to come to him, to make every effort to bring our best to him, to bring our gifts. He calls that worship. And he says, I want to see that. I want to see that every day. I want to see it every week. I want to see you making that attempt to come to me with our heart, with our love, with our obedience just as those individuals from the, from the East came with their gifts. He says, I want to see that in, in every one of you. You're looking for me. What's different about the scripture is you would think that it would be important for us to know as Jesus grew up as a boy. From infancy till he's about 12 years old, we don't really have any information. We don't have anything going on. We, we're not given that information. And at age 12, off they go again to the temple. And 
Remember the time when, when Mary and Joseph and their whole family came, the clan came together and they came to the temple and it was like this great big family event and they all arrived and the little 12-year-old boy, Jesus, wanders off by himself, sits down with the priests, scribes, scholars of the day. He sits down with them and he begins conversing, having a conversation. He's 12. Were you doing that when you were 12? <laughs> I was playing in the sandbox. I was riding my bicycle. I wasn't down with the scholars of the day. I wasn't down there talking about religious things. But that's where Jesus was. He says, I'm going to go down and be about my father's business. His family leaves him there. They lose him. <laughs> you ever lost Jesus? <laughs> Mary and Joseph did. <laughs> they, they left him. Then to go back and find him. And there he was. And the people that were in the group that Jesus was having this conversation with, these so-called leaders and scholars of the day, they were amazed at his understanding. They were amazed at his answers. They would question him and he would come with answers. Of course he would. He's God in flesh. But we see that when he's 12. I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus grows in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. I believe that's Luke chapter 2. And it's the same thing that God requires of us today. You know, if, if your baby uh, is not growing and you take your baby in for that uh, weekly, monthly, whatever exam. I don't know how often you have to do it now, but, uh, and the doctor says, mm, your baby's just not putting on the right kind of weight. Your baby's not growing. There's a problem. Physical growth is important. And it gets to a certain point where it's not good to keep growing. <laughs> when you look down, you can't see your shoes. That's not a good thing. But in the infancy, when the babies are growing, it's it's you've got to be physically growing. It's also Jesus was growing mentally. He grew in in stature uh, and wisdom. He's he's growing his mind. Oh, it's important. Oh, it's important to grow spiritually. And the only way we do that is studying the God's word, studying God's word and, and looking for God, looking for his son, saying, who are these people? Why should I follow them? These are good questions. He grows in wisdom, stature, and favor with both God and men. Those four aspects, we, should, we would do well to follow that example. We should be exactly like that, growing physically, spiritually, mentally, socially, all of those things. So the question then, if this is where Jesus came from, if, if this is the beginning, if this is who he was when he was a child, think about this as he grows into his ministry. He is the son of God and he has a mission. He has something to say, and he has many things to do. 
and he's on a time schedule. He's with God at the creation. He is part of this plan, this marvelous plan that God has. And he says, mankind has left me. They have deserted me. And I need you, Jesus, to return to earth as man and save them from their sin. What's that going to cost me? We never hear Jesus saying that. We do hear him praying in the garden, if, if possible. Let this cup be removed from me. Let this ministry change or, and, and be different and go a different direction. But not my will. Yours be done. Hmm. You see, God had this plan before the foundation of the world that he would save mankind. And in doing that, it would cost God his unique, his one and only son. And Jesus, with an immense love for mankind, he said, I will work the plan. I will do what's required. What was required was death on a cross. Ooh. Of all the ways devised by man to kill another man, quite possibly that was the worst possible death to be stretched out on a wooden cross and then to have nails driven in your hands and feet in such a way that you couldn't breathe very well because your arms were outstretched and your body was hanging by nails you're in excruciating pain from that but you had trouble breathing, so you had to push against the nails in your feet so you could get a breath. The Romans devised this scheme to kill individuals who are convicted of crime, of capital crime. Now we go back in our history and we look back and we say, what was Jesus' crime? Pilate, the prefect of the day, which was similar to our governor of the day, the man in charge, is told by the Jewish leaders, he said, they told him, this is uh, a, a person that needs to be killed. This person needs to have a capital punishment brought down on him. This person needs to be crucified. And Pilate said, what's he done? And so Pilate did what governors would do. He interviewed Jesus. He said, okay, tell me what, what's the story? What, what's going on? And Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were my disciples, we'd pick up, we'd pick up swords, we'd pick up weapons, and we'd go against you, but my kingdom is, is something beyond this world. And Pilate says, so are you a king? He says, I, for this reason I was born. I, I was born to testify to the truth. I came with a mission. I came to bring information to mankind so that they know exactly what God requires of them and then they obey. And Pilate comes out of that conversation with Jesus and he says, I find no guilt in this man. He says this three times. He goes back and talks to Jesus. He says, don't you know who I am? I can, I can have you released. And Jesus says, 
Don't you know who I am? <laughs> I'm the son of God. Pilate didn't know he was playing into the hand of God. Pilate didn't know he was fulfilling God's plan. There he was. When we understand who Jesus is, we understand where he came from, how he came to this earth and how he fulfilled the plan, and then how he was put on the cross to die for our sins. Our response there can only be one rational response to the immensity of the love of the Son of God. The sacrifice that he made, not for his sins, for my sins, your sins, the sins of the world, everyone living today, everyone that has lived up until today, everyone that will live after today. The enormity of the sin. Jesus said, I'll become sin on your behalf. Because God demands death. If we've sinned, we deserve it. And God says, I'll be satisfied with the death of my son. Now, do you want to know what love is? That's love. Now we've become... Uh, aware of who Jesus is. Now we're starting to see the picture of the great plan of God. Now we're starting to see just how much he loves us. I deserve to die. And God says, I'll put my son in, his, in your place. Hmm. Well, that's convenient. What's it going to cost me? Everything. You have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to this enormity of love. You have a responsibility to respond in such a way that pleases God. How do you know if you love God or not? John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Hmm. You mean I got to do something? <laughs> yes, you do. It begins in the mind, begins with a change of heart, begins with a change in the direction of your thought process. And then that thought process drives you into obedience, something that you actually physically do. It's called repentance. You change the direction of your life. And then you return to God mentally. And in so doing, you say, now what must I do? Is there anything I must do? And Peter would respond to that question. He would say, yeah, repent and be immersed, be baptized. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins, your sin can be removed if you contact the blood of Christ, the emblem of God's love for you. And the only way to do that is through baptism into water. Remember he told Nicodemus, she must be born again, water and spirit. Have the right attitude have the right process, you must be born again. When we understand who Jesus is and his claim to be the Son of God, and then our response to him is obedient faith, he says, I'll bless you. And then, come what may, you will be his. His brother, God's child, part of the great inheritance. 
What are you going to do with Jesus?